we know what time it is? It's no time to die. <laughs> oh yes. You can't you've got to start with a pun. I love it. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by two double O agents. One seems to have been killed in action. <laughs> We're still waiting on the report. Uh yep, I'm joined by Steve McCall. Hello. And Gordon Webster. Hello. And we're doing a fourth episode of the Bond Daft cast. Uh, this is obviously for film number four, Thunderball. Uh, we, well, actually, we're going to talk, we're, before we get into Thunderball, let's talk about that, that, that we do title. New Bond news? Yes, New Bond news, breaking news. My improvised news jingle. That's it, we've got it. Yeah. Oh, phone's going. Two seconds. Oh, could that be our other agent? <laughs> Disappointingly, no. No, it's not. Ah, so you're it. not. I thought you were going to give him a Blofeld esque ultimatum, like a and you know, get here by eight o'clock, or I'm going to blow up something. <laughs> yes, blow up your flats. <laughs> yeah. Do yeah, we expect you to say. talk? Yes, we do. It's a podcast. We're <laughs> <laughs> <Over> here. <laughs> Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna persevere, just the, the three of us. Uh, but yes, let's let's get into that. The breaking news: the new James Bond is it's not no longer Bond twenty five. It's it's got a title. We actually do. It is called No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Bond is being forced to work beyond the retirement age by the current Conservative <laughs> government, and literally has no I time like to that. die. I like that. Yes, no, get that. I, I don't think we know what it's about yet, but mm. we know that. A huge chunk of the cast is basically returning. Um, so obviously Daniel Craig as Bond. You've got Ben Whishaw as Q. Ralph Fiennes as M. Yep. Uh, Money Penny is the same. Is it Nomi Harris? I believe so. Yes, it is. And the, the lady who plays Madeline Swan's returning, whether that's a cameo or a, a like lengthy appearance, I'm not too sure. Leah Sidhu, apparently. I may have pronounced that Yeah, I was that scared wrong. to say when I saw on your phone, Steve. I thought, <laughs> I'll leave this to Steve. Hopefully he'll bite. I was going to look as though I had all this in my memory. You've just given away the fact that I am actually looking at the BBC News article. <laughs> well, we can, we we can cut details. it. I'll maybe be generous <laughs> for you. I'll cut that. Subtle little cut. <laughs> yeah. um, I think the thing I'm most excited about is seeing Rami Malek as a Bond villain. Yeah. Because I don't know if any of you have seen the Amazon Prime series, Mr. Robot. My brother keeps telling me to watch it. It's brilliant. He is so good in that. He's it's just it's fantastic. Is so. he a villain in it? I thought he was a, a sort of anti-hero character. That's exactly. He's not a villain. He is kind of he is as you put it the anti-hero. Yeah. Um. So he's got kind of he does maybe bad things, but it's all in the name of something ultimately good. Yeah. But he as a I don't know as an actor I can just he's got that perfect sort of Bond villain look. Yeah, I, I was gonna say the exact same thing. I I thought I'm sure you guys must feel the same thing. He's got that it's those those bulging eyes. I saw the only time I've actually seen him in anything was as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, the 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 biopic about. Queen, where I thought it was amazing, different type of film, but he's got that villainous look, doesn't oh, he? Yes, Completely he still agrees. does. Yeah, he's kind of, he seems kind of young, but um, not too. I young. think he's just only a year older than me. I think he's about 30, 33, I think, or thirty-five. Yeah, or something. yeah he's one of those actors. He's our age, someone and, who's our age, but out there making millions, and I just think, oh, yeah, yeah, it's not fair. And do you know what? In the same way as to me, there was always room for an older Bond. There's room for a younger villain as well. And again, it's maybe taking the the franchise to a, a slight different level you know can you imagine him what kind of villain he'll be almost like if you take the mr robot character and the sort of live and the sort of villain you could get now a hacker style character maybe that might be interesting. something like that if it's a younger like villain sorry I was like yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that's a reboot of a sort of yeah modern day boris would be cool but i can see him if he's young i can see them bringing maybe technology into it somewhere so it could be some kind of hacker or some kind of computer whereas if it is then I think it'll be, but I think it'll be, it'll be one, it won't be one of these sort of brutish, um, you know, all attacking type villains. I reckon it'll be more sort of quiet, maybe in the background instructing henchmen type. Um, I mean, he'll probably have, I mean, did Dave Batista die in Spectre? And do you think, first of all, coming to Spectre, is Blofeld going to be in this? Are they actually going to continue that story? It doesn't look like it because I don't believe Ralph Fiennes has been listed in the cast. Dave Batista. Oh, they- Yes, he Ray has. Uh, Ray he has uh, going back. To but he it, plays. Uh, he plays. M, I was so... Ralph no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. That that shows you how how 
a great arm with the modern day Bond films compared to the old ones. You only nah. know your 60s Bond. <laughs> oh, come on, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> come on. Um, but, sorry, I meant to say... No, I'll get it. Don't say his name. Um... Oh, Christ. Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz. Oh, yeah, so you had to there, so I, the countdown I the timer was ticking. brain malfunction there. Um, but Dave Bautista's character thing did die. I said, I've only seen Spectre once, actually, believe it or not. And he went, he gets sort of like fell out of a train and not a lot of people survive falling out of a high-speed train, so we'll assume that he died. Yeah, it probably did die, but it's one of those ones where you don't feel like, unless you've seen their head coming off in film, it, usually you can sort of find a way to bring them back. Yeah, um, it seems like it's similar to the Goldfinger getting sucked out of the plane, like you just see him leave the train or leave the plane. So. Yeah, before um, we move off of the stir speculation on this film, because we've not actually had a chance to do this on the, the podcast much, um, the name No Time to Die, do you think this has anything to do with a reboot? Of maybe a doctor no. That's interesting. My That's mate, an interesting concept. Yeah, my mate put that to me. I have to give him credit, Neil. Um, and he thinks it's going to be a sequel in a way to Spectre, and they're building on some of the 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 previous films. And this is a very subtle way for a reboot of Doctor No. And well, I th- I could see Rami Malek as a a ver a rebooted version of the Do- Doctor No character. That is an interesting mm. concept. Because what I didn't realise and what I did end up reading is that Cubby Broccoli produced a film or directed a film back in 1958 called No Time to Die. Oh, that's right, yeah. Not related to Bond at all. It was a kind of, I think it was a war type. Yeah, it was a sort of prisoner of war type film. Yeah. Um, it does sound, when you hear that name, that's the sort of name you can imagine. I mean, it does also feel like a Bond title. I've seen a lot of comments on Twitter and things like that. It was the Bond algorithm has successfully, you know, brought us <laughs> yeah, no time to die. Bondian. It does feel it does, very yes, Bond like. No, it's got die. Yeah. 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 For me, it's, it's a slight um, anticlimactical title, um, but it is it's Bonding, all right. I mean, you know, the the die love concept. You know, there's a few titles with with that. I don't think it's it's good. Yeah, it didn't blow me away. And like all Bond film titles and paraphernalia, it will grow on me. I, I know that. Yeah, uh, the previous title that was speculated was Shatterhand, which I I preferred that. Really? Yeah. Do you prefer the sort of snappier sounding one word? You know, Golden Eye. Yeah, that's where Spectre. it works really well. And and but part of the reason Ian Fleming is obviously good is that good at that sorry because shatterhand was the name of the the character the main the main villain in the you only love twice novel ah so there is there's a sort of genuine connection to his novels with shatterhand yeah i know i don't mind it there's a lot of people were slagging that one it seemed a bit silly but i, I you know it's i think it works in a world where octopussy is, is the name <laughs> of a film i think you can yeah. you can do shatterhand it does kind of suggest all these little hints suggest that it could be some kind of link to the older films you've got the, the no link you've got the shatterhand link so it, it, we might find it harking back to the older films, which I think might be it might be quite cool because the some of the newer ideas have seemed a little bit kind of too far sort of too far removed from the original ideas, which is where the history is. So going back to your history, I think it's not a bad thing. And with better sexual politics, I think this they'll, they'll get that right this time. Uh, oh yeah, well obviously as we've mentioned before, you have got Phoebe Waller Bridge as a writer this yeah. time round, so I think yeah, there's going to be a lot less in the way of sexism or if there is any I reckon it'll be called out immediately mm-hmm. by someone and who knows Bond might get kicked in the balls this time by a woman or something it might be and very quickly before time. we move on to this we promise we'll start talking about Thunderball soon there was speculation that there was going to be a female 007 not James Bond but some sort of 007 female th- uh, some yeah I think it's been established that that is the case so I think the one thing we know is that M calls 007 into a room and it's a woman that walks in. So what we know is that James Bond isn't 007, which makes you think, what the hell is going to be the outcome of this film then? Because that's quite a that seems to me like quite a curveball. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, it's it's an intriguing prospect actually. This is um, one of the biggest moves potentially. Obviously, we're not talking; we've not seen the film. Um, but yeah, so it's what is it? Is it next year? It's coming out. It is next year. I don't. I don't know what part of next year. Right. Okay. All right then. Let's uh, let's go back to the past. Let's go back to 1965. I got that right, didn't I? Yep. 
Yes, we're back with Terence Young, his last directed film, isn't it? For James Bond films. Yep. Uh, so he came back with Guy Hamilton stepping for um, Goldfinger. And interestingly, we've got Terence Young coming back. Goldfinger was, we all agree, man, that was a real epic big film, a big event film, like you said, Stephen. And um, so you could be forgiven for thinking we're maybe going to go back to a more grounded Bond, but I mean, I'm not going to spoil it, but Thunderball is epic. If you enjoy Goldfinger, you're going to enjoy this. Excellent. Um, I have almost zero memory apart from a lengthy water fight, uh, like an underwater <laughs> yeah. battle. Slightly, As a kid, yeah. you know, looking for my next GoldenEye, I was bored to tears with that film, but I was looking for something completely different. My expectations were not quite the same. Um... And that's all I remember from the film. I, you're saying obviously if you're if you expect a grounded film, I don't imagine we're going to get another grounded one film until we hit Casino Royale. Yeah, I mean, maybe I mean, maybe the, maybe License to Kill, I suppose. Maybe there's a couple that I I certainly think were more grounded. Different people have different opinions on, on even those films. You know, some people are saying, "Oh, but how can it be grounded if this happened?" You know. But there's a couple more, I think, you know, because oh, right, they couldn't, okay. they couldn't, like I said before, guys, I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't have every film no. a doomsday plot, you know, you have to have a grounded bond every so often. All right, then, very quickly, if you can maybe summarise what's, what is, what's the synopsis of this film, Gordon? Well, Spectre's back? Spectre's back, yeah. So that's the, the key thing, first of all. So Goldfinger, we, it went... It just looked like a sort of independent villain, which worked really well. We're going back to Spectre, who are arguably more dangerous than ever. It's a, it's a ransom plot, which Bond's um, quite famous for. And this particular one, which is carrying two atomic bombs, they hide these two atomic bombs away. Um, so it's just really, yeah, for money. <laughs> and that's, of course, they, they enlist Bond as one of the double O's. Excellent. And it's a, quite a lengthy two hours and ten minutes or something. Um, I, w- on, I wanted also uh, to say about the early 1980s, in an unof- unofficial capacity, around the late 50s, early 60s, Ian Fleming collaborated with this Irish, and these three guys did the first sort of screen treatment, the first screenplay to, to try and adapt Bond into um, a, you know, a film or a series of films, and um, it contained uh, loosely a lot of the concepts that ended up in Thunderball. So this idea never quite got off the ground. And um, Thunderball was originally intended to be the first Bond film. Uh, it didn't quite go off the ground. They went and released Doctor No. Ian Fleming, actually, before they re- released Doctor No, he was still writing Bond novels at this point, and he, uh, he wrote his own version of Thunderball, which used ideas that he'd collaborated in these other two guys with, one of whom was McClory. And he didn't give them credit for it, and the book was released. I think the book did quite well, and a big major plagiarism uh, lawsuit followed from Kevin McClory, the producer, saying, um, you know, him and the other guy didn't get the, the due credit for it, and um, there was an out-of-court settlement eventually. Fleming had to pay quite a bit of money, and one of the, one of the outcomes was that Kevin McClory won the rights to um, sort of the Spectre name and the, the, the ideas of the whole underwater theme of this film and this was about 1963 when two Bond films had already been released and as a result um, Thunderball he gets producer credits rather than Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman which do all, who are the you know mentioned at the start of each of the other films he get producer credit he even makes a cameo in the film actually and who, who McClory? Kevin McClory yeah so as a, he, as a one off he was the producer because he won the rights because of this legal battle now it goes a lot further Kevin McClory um, basically was just throwing spanners in the works for years to the effect that for a long time, even in the 70s, um, they couldn't even use the Spectre name because he'd won the, the film rights to the whole Spectre organisation. And this guy, McClory, actually, until he died pretty much in 2006, which was actually in Daniel Craig era, um, he was filing lawsuit after lawsuit um, at the, you know, the Bond producers. And that held back the franchise, and there was numerous court cases for decades, and it only actually got fully settled in 2013. And one of the outcomes was that 
the, he remade his own version of Thunderworks. He said, I've got the right to do that. So the same year as Octopus, he came out in 83. They did Never Seen Ever Again, which is a, a remake of Thunderball. I've always considered if we should be doing an episode on those. But I reckon they'll just be bonus episodes, similar to what we did with the music one. But uh, they're fascinating. And I've not seen them. I've not seen Never Seen Ever Again. Or when I say them, I'm referring to the, the parody as well of Casino Royale. Yeah. It's like two separate films that are linked in some way to Bond. Um, that's fascinating about all the, the losses stuff. I knew there was yeah. a whole mess of stuff, but I never uh, knew the ins and outs of it, but you've quite succinctly... Yeah, oh, oh, thanks. I, I, sorry, I, I felt I was rambling there, but so the key concept is um, Thunderball actually got remade, which, which is kind of... Yeah. It wasn't exactly a disaster, and I've meant to check this, but I'm sure Thunderball was the second biggest grossing Bond film of all time behind Skyfall. Obviously, that must be like based on taking inflation into account, but I think it was like the second biggest blockbuster of all the Bond films. I suppose the film after Goldfinger means so much for the Bond franchise, I think, and then your next film was just going to have the crowds were waiting for it, you know? And it was the year... They were that their five-year st- stretch where they just did five films, you know, in a franchise, just firing them out. And the momentum is obviously incredible. All right. We're 16 minutes in and we haven't watched the film yet, so I think it's about time we now go and watch the film. We're going to order some food as well, by the way, and we're getting very hungry. And uh, we'll be back to go into spoilerific detail on Thunderball. Bye. And we are back after having watched Thunderball. What do we think of this one, gents? I think the word to describe that is epic beyond anything, considering the uh, previous three. So the, as I, I think I mentioned, the previous three have all been quite, uh, quite tight. They've all been, they've all been under an hour and a half, I think, haven't they? Uh, at least maybe just short of two hours or an hour and 40 minutes I would say probably yeah the first three I think are there and thereabouts an hour and a half each so a lot more concise they really fleshed out for this one didn't they They oh they they properly did yes there are you could see the I think the artistic vision was slightly different with this one they let some of those particularly those underwater scenes breathe um slightly ironically considering that that's one thing you can't do underwater but um yeah, they they went on quite quite. A bit. <laughs> Sorry, I like that. I like that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of underwater sequences and different types of underwater sequences. You know, um, mostly the fights at the end. Um, there was an underwater love scene, I suppose. That was. Yeah, I mean, they were really pushing the boat out, um, and that's another pun there. But uh, it's just, it was, it was. We've been recording for a minute and thirty. Yeah, I've got all these puns in. (laughs) This is the direction we're taking. Are we pun cast now? Yeah, Gordon, you rewatched this film uh, for I don't know the eightieth time. What's your thoughts on it? Rewatching it on Blu-ray. Very enjoyable. I, I tried to just take in more this time. And I mean, I hold my hands up, although I love this film that, like Steve says, you know, they really um, flex out the underwater scenes they do, which do drag a bit later on. And I've even found myself, you know, in more recent times watching this, switching off somewhat of those scenes. But I maybe took more of it in today. And as we were doing it for the review, I appreciated more of the cinematography more. Some, like you said, Steve, some absolutely amazing shots underwater especially and i loved the way that massive fight between largo's men you know largo inspector versus bond and i think it was the cia or was it maybe the nato you know underwater forces all wearing the orange gear and while there's all this you know shooting with all the harpoons going on there's all these sea creatures just trying to go about their daily routine like (laughs) the the, the prey and the mori eel and the massive lobster and um, but that's part of the cinematography and tons of sharks. I, I love films with sharks, i got to say. <laughs> but um, I, I like the way they mixed, you know, the, the, it's just the exotic the exoticness of this film showing all these sea creatures. Obviously, they did a lot of it kind of off camera away from the film itself, but I, it had a very exotic feel to this film, especially been in the Bahamas and showing you the coral reef and even the quieter moments earlier in the film just to set the scene where it shows, you know, like a turtle swimming along and 
Yeah, just you could tell they had a big budget with this film. I mean, it was nine million dollars this time, and Goldfinger was three million. You know, just one film before, and and it shows. I mean, it really shows in this film that they had a bigger budget. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, On the sea creature point, the first time what what struck me was the first time we meet Domino. She's kind of catching a lift on a massive turtle. It's pulling her along yeah, and she's kind of yeah. holding the back of it. <laughs> which I thought that that's one hell of a way to get about. Are they trying to suggest that's where folk get about in the Bahamas? Yeah. Just, I'll just hang on to this turtle. <laughs> it's like Marty McFly and the skateboard in the back of the pickup truck. Back to the future. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. Um, the cinematography, Gordon, you touched on that. That was the main takeaway for me. I, I thought visually this this film was really impressive. Probably of the, the four, um, this is the most impressive those underwater sequences from a visual point of view were impressive they were the luscious shots the exotic feel you, you touched on as well um certainly throughout the film i liked as well i would say my attention did waver on this one more than it has on the prior films i don't know if it's the combination of the film have a longer running time probably as well as there was a feeling of excess throughout this film that probably maybe needed just a slightly sharper edit or something like that and i think underwater sequences especially when they're elongated can be they're not the most cinematic cinematic in a way that they looked amazing but they also aren't the most there's no pacey. dialogue i yes. think that's it obviously no, 10 minute stretches can't. of zero dialogue it yeah. feels like you're just watching a, a, a documentary and it's i don't know or something like that and the first of those sequences in fairness i was quite impressed it was it was, it's, I mean, it's a brave move when you're doing any kind of filming where you just cut the dialogue and let the pictures do the talking. True, very true. And yeah. that's precisely, and at first, I wonder if it, to what extent it was, because obviously this was released back in the 60s. These aren't scenes I imagine the audiences would have been used to. I don't know how many films would have that much underwater. They were probably yeah, showing off yeah. slightly. Yeah, yeah, that's true, actually. I think you're right. I mean, this is, what's 1965? Yeah. I'm not familiar with many of the 60s films, I will say, but I, I don't recall that sort of, you know, a, a film with that amount of amazing shots underwater and... Yeah kind of pushing the boat out again i'm using that what that expression <laughs> to try and do something different and I, I suppose i can applaud that certainly that that's so you got to give them that yes, that's that's absolutely that's, they're trying something different with each film we're noticing a completely different style different tone and and no this is a fourth film and they've kept up the the lavishness and the swagger that we we talked about the goldfinger brought to the the, the, the table this film started off with, with that running you know he's got a fucking jetpack <laughs> you, you guys <laughs> laughed loud that is literally the, the, the top note on my notes it's yeah. just where the fuck did that yeah. jetpack come from uh, wow that I, is there do we have any explanation for that so to kind of recap he was what was the it was in, it was the what building was he in so this is the opening scene this is the the, the pre-title sequence yeah what was that? It was a funeral, wasn't it? It was That's a funeral right, yes. for um, Jacques Bouvard, who was, it turns out, was a spectre agent, or he was supposedly dead, and it turned out to be his widow in disguise. But it's as though the jetpack must have been planted there, and that, you know, like this this walkway near the roof of the. So it was like a, a chapel, wasn't it? A, a church. Yeah. So, yeah, he. So he, he, he was. He, he hid upstairs because he was. He was he was chased upstairs by some associates of. Oh, sorry. It was sorry. I just interrupt quickly. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. That, so that I'm getting ahead yeah, of myself. Was this was the mansion. Yeah, yeah. He went to like. Was I was like, no, he definitely wasn't the widow. Church. He was alive. I sorry. What I was <laughs> what I was going to say was um, it wasn't a church. Then he went. He kind of overtook the guy to his house or this big kind of mansion. So it was in the, the roof of the mansion. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. No, that's I, I couldn't remember which building he's in. The absolutely. It was that's what made it more confusing. The. So he, he was chased onto the roof of this mansion and then out of nowhere <laughs> took off yeah. in the most hilarious fashion. I don't know what was so funny about it. I think it was obviously he was... What they'd done was they'd taken a shot of him standing bolt upright with the jetpack on. <laughs> and and they kind of superimposed it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like a, yeah. He just kind of leaped 
And, and I don't know how else to describe it, but it was the funniest thing. It didn't look. It didn't look natural. <laughs> I, it sort of it's it's a, it's a, I think it's the sound effect too. It was just so sudden, and and you know it was a real jetpack as well. Sean Connery didn't use the real jetpack. The close-up was his face, but one of the stuntmen went up in a real jetpack. Really? Yeah. So that's where eight and a half of the nine million pound budget went. Oh, yeah. that's, but it's, how the hell did it get there? It must. Someone must have thought ahead to plant the jetpack on the roof and know that he would have run out to. It was just bizarre. Bond's taking notes from Goldfinger and his sort of overly elaborate <laughs> thought-out plans, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that that was the film saying, look, you know what? We're still going with this. This is this is Bond now, you know? Because <laughs> when it got to Goldfinger, it, it was just in such a grand scale like we were talking about. Where do you go from there, you know? And you go to an even... Of course, you go to an even bigger level. You, you, you give us Thunderball with jetpacks and, you know... Under and it was great to see just you know Bond in an underwater setting too, and just like you said, such lush um, you know camera footage underwater, and and I, I again, I mean, I'll just say seeing it for the first time, Blu-ray gave me a new appreciation for the actual shots themselves, and I mean we. I've said before, just my excitement actually seeing the Bonds and Blu-ray for the first time, and I'll put it on record, you said to me at the start of the film, Steve, I, I hope you've brought spare underwear with you tonight, going. <laughs> and I said, well, it's a, it's an hour and ten minutes, no, sorry, it's two two hours and ten minutes long, it's a long film, so I've got several changes of underwear for this film. <laughs> and you've gone through every pair. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll leave it at that, uh, it's a... <laughs> been a messy affair um but yeah it's uh, there was a lot there's a lot to unpack in this film where else do you want to what, what do you want to tackle uh first then after that pre-tackle sequence i suppose we've got the song coming in then with tom jones i was yeah that was i mean the song was it was great it didn't feel as i mean there's something about shirley bassey's goldfinger that's just think, yeah, epic and um, this, it yeah. didn't quite match up to it it was still it was powerful tom jones's voice he, I mean, he is, he's the male Shirley Bassey, if you like, particularly for that time. Um, so he's got the sort of booming voice, but he, it's not, it's not a, it's not a patch on, on the previous film on Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We spoke about it as well on our music one, Gordon, but mm-hmm. we more or less agreed. You, you liked this song, didn't you? The uh, Tom Jones one? Yeah, I think yeah. it mixed up a bit having a, a male vocalist. And just the elements of the Bond theme as well uh, that I used, I thought, worked really well and gave the sense that, you know, the, the underwater um, setting of the film as well. And, yeah, like I said, um, you know, a real exoticness, especially... I just watched that film and I want to go out to the Bahamas after after seeing all that, you know. I usually want to go to most of the places they film. Yeah. Uh, they, they certainly pick some of the nicest places or exotic, certainly. Yeah, full disclosure, I should voice it. I've, I've been to NASA a couple of times. I was trying to recognise, but obviously that was filmed in the 60s. I was there a couple of years ago, so it's obviously massively changed. Um, but that, that the water genuinely does look that blue and that lush and that stunning. Uh, it's gorgeous. Some of the, the, I mean, you can see why they've chosen it. It's it's amazing. So pretty damn jealous, <laughs> Steve. I mean, this film as well. We got our we got our sort of staples of the sort of Bond. You know, we've got our our Q scene where he gets his new gadgets for this film. That's becoming the sort of more that's becoming the pattern of these films now. It gives you the. It give, it kind of gives you a hint of what's coming up. The it happens to have been given a Geiger counter. So yeah, you know, there's some kind of um, radiation involved somewhere. Um, you've got the underwater camera that you get, so you know you're, there's going to be underwater scenes. Um, the flare just to the you know to make sure he gets rescued. The yeah. tracking device yeah. that he swallows. Yeah. It's all very. It, yeah, it does get you feeling. How does he know exactly what's going to happen to him? All the as usual, all of the gadgets given to him by Q happen to come in. Incredibly yeah. handy at certain oh, yeah. points of the film, and they never fail either, do they? No. It's not like they he tries yeah. them and then yeah. it's like, oh, that was useless. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There's always the perfect situation to use everyone, and it was nice to see the DB5 back as well. And it, it gives, it really keeps you an edge. Seeing he's about to use one of the devices, and the car lifts up the the little um, armrest where it has the hidden controls, but he doesn't actually use it. Which is quite. Is this the scene at the start when he's using all the different gadgets in the car? And if and again, I think that's the the the, the pre-tie. No, the pre-tie I sequence? think was that not when he was being it was being the the scene that you get in every Bond film where 
inside the car it's obviously a projector in the background and he's being tailed by another yeah, car yeah yeah and then that car gets shot out by the motorcycle yeah there was an interesting illusion there because i think that the the idea was that that the guy who worked for specter count lippy who's supposed to eliminate bond no i don't know if he was necessarily supposed to eliminate bond at the health farm but he, he, he cocked up bond was coincidentally at the same health farm as um, the Spectre were doing their dirty work to swap the identity with this NATO pilot for this assassin who, and then because I got the idea it was because this Spectre agent Count Lippy failed and picked the wrong guy who demanded more money, they sent the femme fatale Fiona Volpe, the, you know, the, the, the girl with the ginger hair to eliminate him, so there was this nice uh, I this illusion in the when Bond is driving along the car he was about to kill Bond and Bond's about to use the devices in the car you think this motorbike assassin who you don't see their head because they've got a helmet on you think they're to kill Bond as well but she actually just ignores Bond and takes out Count Lippy in his car which of course explodes into a fireball like they always do yeah there's quite a lot of swerves where you're, it's playing up to what you expect and then sort of switching it playing on the formula that's already been created I suppose which again I can appreciate on that side of things I think that's probably a point to bring out considering we've just mentioned the switching of the uh, the, the pilots that was it was it NASA that he was with who was it with? he was a NATO, NATO pilot sorry that's what I meant yeah, yeah. that that was a, a sort of another and we we touched on the last in the last podcast on plans constructed by villains over a number of years this one legitimately did they they referenced in the film that the assassin guy had spent two years watching I think watching films of the guy he was switching body with, getting plastic surgery to look like him and then imitating his voice <laughs> over two years <laughs> yeah. to get to that point in the health suite yeah, yeah. where they killed him and switched with him. Spectre like their plastic surgery. You'll see that with both the multiple Blofelds in one of the later films, which I will not mention. All right. Uh, yeah, there was some meticulous planning. I'll not mention it because um, I don't like seeing the name of the film very much. Oh, right, I see. Right, I see. Uh, Excellent, excellent coding <laughs> there, Gordon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the woman of Bond in, in this film, um, again, there was the uncomfortable scene that I feel was an extension of what something happened in Goldfinger, this this film. Had. Yes, yes, I know precisely what you're referring to. And again, we, I've, I've kind of, now that we're in film, almost sit there waiting for the moment. And it kind of happens earlier and earlier in the film. And this one, they just, they kind of got it over and done with at if, the very start yeah it was, was almost the like suite. there was a weird mandatory list of here we have to have the scene that is a bit now from a 2019 point of view very uh, off-putting and a little creepy here it is right up front here it is just get it over with tick it off then we can get to the other stuff it was, it was strange it was it felt you know it did happen much quicker than it has say in the, the pussy galore scene um and the stud farm in Goldfinger. Yes, and this, this is, yeah. This was the he was, kind of forces himself. This was the misuse, on, the misuse. At the, the health farm. The yeah, the sort of the recovery, the place where he's recovering, effectively. Yeah, I mean, it was actively her saying no, and him still just he was, going for it. He was blackmailing her too. He was hinting that I'm going to have to report about this, and she says I'll lose my job. And he's like, my he says. My um, my silence could have a price. Yes, oh, yes. It's uh, yeah. bringing blackmail into it as yep, well. Yeah, is just and this is just before she. It's for a slightly odd scene where she straps him to a machine that supposedly lengthens his spine, which someone then comes in and malfunctions with. Yeah, which leaves him effectively dry humping a massive, yeah. <laughs> um, sort of <laughs> leather, um. <laughs> sort of board thing until I know, she comes uh, back I, I, I never thought off. in the world of Bond this 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 cool. Um, hard secret agent would be left there shouting help, help. Yeah, because <laughs> he, he he couldn't do anything about it. Yeah, it he was... gets revenge. And yeah, he does. Revenge. But um, you know that shot of him dry humping the. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's meme material right there. You know, I, was, I thought like... that that needs that needs to be a gift yeah, somehow. Um... A sticky situation, and uh, that was a lot sooner, of course, to say than the Goldfinger one with a laser. Yeah. Um. She does. Once she's strapped him into that, she does say, "This is the safest I've felt all day." Oh, which suggests it was that that kind of that yeah, line. Yeah, I like, never. Right, really I've finally got. I've yeah. finally now that I've strapped your hands and feet into a machine that effectively an old medieval rack that stretches your spine. Now I'm safe. You know, um, while while we're talking about uh, the Bond girls, I I really I thought Fiona Volpe, the the spectator with the ginger hair, um, was 
brilliant. I thought um, she was just a, uh, the first, maybe, like, true femme fatale, you know, like, beautiful femme fatale, and, you know, one of the best, you know, acting-wise, like, on the level of Xenia Onatop, who obviously were all big GoldenEye fans, mm-hmm. and, you know, one or two, I was like, Mayday, for example, played by Grace Jones. I thought I thought Domino, um, showed, you know, was quite a strong character. I, I liked with her, there was the angle of, she was, she was, you could tell she was sort of, like, um, damaged and she she uh, her missing brother is like she sort of viewed him all like almost as a father figure you know there was she, she troubled maybe more the word she was quite a kind of troubled woman and later on she really you know she, not only does she kill Largo which saves the day but um what was the other thing I was going to say well you were touched on how it was an emotional scene that actually I was one of my favorite scenes in the film she, you know, when Bond explains to her, he shows her the, is it the... the it's a dog tag. The dog tag of, mm-hmm. you know, what's, what's happened. And obviously she sort of takes it in that it's, her brother has, has been killed. It's it's one of the first, to me, emotional scenes the film, that these films have, you know, where a character's deal, dealing with true mourning. Yeah. And Bond has yeah. to try and... I mean, he actually, for a moment, does look genuinely sympathetic. But it does... It doesn't last very long. It goes back to typical bonds. There's yeah. a, somebody's trying to kill them and things like that. But there was a moment there where it felt like it was being a different film. It actually felt quite, quite sentimental. I actually quite enjoyed that scene. It was beautifully shot yeah, as well. On the it's beach. something we've not seen since Doctor No, when um, the guy's killed on the beach. The guy that was helping Bond, Quarrel, Quarrel. Yeah. Yes, when he's killed, you, that's the only other time I can think of where you see some semblance of emotion and like from I would say also when Karen Bay dies in the train and from Russia with Love you know his ally that he spends yeah but I think on those there was anger and with Quarrel we didn't really get to see, it was all very urgent he was captured immediately and he sort of has a one line where he says in revenge for Quarrel or something like that and with you know Karen Bay it's, it's kind of the same this was a very quieter moment and it was just a bit more impactful and you could just see it was more from her point of view actually her performance was great in that scene yeah, i actually absolutely. felt um, yeah. i think you need some credit needs to be given there because this is an early you know bond girl performance and this you know it's 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 sort of seen as a term to kind of a bit demeaning isn't it but the bond girl and that so there's nothing more to them in that but that scene really shows that these yeah. you know these are characters with display a lot and from an emotional point of view, and that was I, I just really enjoyed that scene. Actually, I thought that was uh, one of my favourite scenes. Good scene. A couple of things about that. I, I thought Claudine Auger who played her, who did really well, and she was dubbed as well. And you, again, you wouldn't really know. And that That's, that scene yeah. was really good. I do, I do think her emotion could have been a. I think she'd be a bit more hysterical. Not maybe not hysterical, but it 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 felt a bit kind of forced in, in that. I think that her emotion could have been portrayed a bit better you know she just heard her brother's dad i thought that could have been done better but Did you really i actually i thought she was really good i thought she she was really good yeah it was I, quite I, a defiant yeah. sort of anger sadness mm. thing. i think there was i think she was obviously taking in the news that her brother had died but also i think that realization that it was largo that had killed him so i think it was almost anger taking over which is possibly why she wasn't as hysterical maybe yeah just your brother is dead yeah exactly. the vengeance part was good for sure and it was apt how she was the one that killed Largo in the end mm-hmm. I think you see going back I was just I was just going to say while you were touching the on the cue scene uh, just to kind of change, change the tone a little bit I thought the cue scene in this film was absolutely fantastic that's possibly that's one of the best cue bonding cue scenes of all time mm-hmm. and following on from the humorous um, side that they brought in in Goldfinger Bond is in the room with the other MI6 personnel and Q just comes in carrying all this stuff with this bright Hawaiian shirt with like pineapples on it and Bond just looks up and sees him and goes, oh no. <laughs> and then just some of the dialogue to them is just cracking. I, I like um, Bond's flicking the little switch and Q kind of pulls his hand and he's like, with great care. And the best is probably the end, the little homing device. And he's like, well, what am I supposed to do with it? And he goes, well, obviously you swallow it. And he goes... No. <laughs> uh, yeah, the fan. There was some of the dialogue in general. I think was actually yeah. really, good, really tight dialogue. Um, the one-liners. There was constant one-liners. You know, after most of the most of the deaths, there was a lot of comedy, and um, which contrasted with you know some of the scenes of you know 
emotion and, and the, the serious cinematography, but there's some yeah, some great dialogue and even just like not necessarily um verbal dialogue, but also um just some of the actions like at the start Bond's Bond's just um taken out Bouvard, who was dressed up as a woman, and, and although he's like a second away from the guys in the other room breaking through, it's time to throw the roses on on top of the the corpse. And then there's the bit when he's like spying on Lippy and the and Shrublands, you know, the health um, farm at the start. And although he's like a second from the guy noticing him creeping into the room, he's time to lean in, just grab a little grape and eat it as well. Just there's some small, <laughs> nice, subtle, tiny little yeah. touches. I was thinking, was there? Yeah, other than just for the sheer, just random fun of it, it's it's interesting some of the things that uh, he does. The lines as well, things like uh, what was it? The line about not being taken for a ride. I quite like that exchange as well. And I like it that it's what it's like, sort of. Um, poking the bees nest as he often does with uh, the the chief villain you know trying to kind of provoke them in a way when he goes into the casino and he starts playing uh, Largo at wh- whatever the, the card game is and he says I, I see the was it the spectre on your shoulder you know and he's like what do you mean and then yeah. he says oh it's your spectre against mine so the Bond that was a classic trait of Bond you got it a bit with like Roger Moore's Bond as well mm-hmm. or Pierce Brosnan even like trying to um, sorry, he just can't resist um, trying to provoke the villain and trying to find out about him a little bit. What did we think of Largo as a villain in this film? Uh, was, I, th- I don't know, he was a lot more kind of, I suppose, su- I don't want to say underwhelming, but subtle. Yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose anything after Goldfinger in a way would be a little that, subtle. That is maybe I where mean, my comparison's coming from, yeah. I think I- having the eye patch gave him, like most villains, that sort of. Um, well, it was the thing that distinguishes, isn't it? Distinguishable, you know? yeah, distinguishable sort of feature or um, abnormality, you know. And I like, um, you could tell he's a powerful character. He's Spectre number two, for God's sake. I mean, but, you know, he's the underboss to Blofeld, of course. But I like at the start, see when uh, you first see Largo, he comes out of this car and uh, there's this traffic warden's like, oh, you can't park here. And he just sees it's him. He notices the eye patch and the guy just suddenly freezes like, oh, sorry. And then uh, Largo turns and walks across the road, just walks out in front of some car as if it's not there, just as if he doesn't even yeah, notice that, it. And that it has to slow down. Like, I'm so powerful, I can yes. do anything I want. I it, thought he was great, actually. Yeah, I mean, what number was Rosa Klebb in From Russia With Love? Is, uh, do they replace each other? How does how did that work? I don't or think are they all? Was... Is she like that number five or number seven or something? Uh, I'm trying to picture. It. I don't think she was. You I think know, number I three and number place. four or something. I think she maybe. was three, yeah. to be honest. But um, and it's good again. You don't actually see Blofeld. You hear his voice. They're gradually just building up for that for that big moment, that big reveal in a future film, which were. We're, we're going to get to that. I like that, again, they, they, they handled like that very well. The layer, again, has expanded from the sort of room that it was before. It's that sort of big open plan villain layer uh, with all the, the massive long table with all the, the people at the different seats and all like of which that. were electrified. Yes. And, uh, yeah, Blofeld had a massive panel where he could choose who to electrify, which and it- was great. And a lot, and like a lot of the villains, there's the ploy that you think it's the the obvious person that's going going to get the chop. That you know, it's like the guy who's being a bit mouthy. You'd think, oh, he's the one who's been embezzling the money, but it's actually the cam guy sitting next to him that yeah. gets. It. You guys were really entertained, weren't you, by the big MI six briefing room? When I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. we didn't we didn't have the big elaborate villains layer this time. But what we did have, as you mentioned, was MI 6s conference room. That's... Yeah, the Home Secretary, I think, was heading it because it was obviously a huge. Every double O man in Europe got called to. Yeah. So there was what night was it nine seats for the double O agents or something? It looked a bit. I'm trying to, uh, to see how many double other double O's, which we, you know we love, of course. And I like when Bond came in late and M just glares at him and is like, "Well, now that we're all here." <laughs> yeah, I mean that 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 set was impressive, ridiculous, and again excessive. I would say yes, but... the, this grand, almost ballroom with the massive paintings. One of which, of course, lifted up to reveal a map of the world. Yeah. And I think what we all noticed was the distance between the table where the Home Secretary <laughs> then was sitting, and for a mile and a half where yeah. you had the um, the night the um, all the double O agents sitting. And, um, why did it? You could have shuff, shuffled up slightly. Yeah. But that that was hilarious. Uh, I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, it was again 
this this film it was the sort of the the, the feeling of excess just yeah. they they probably had the set decorators or like put them maybe about a meter away and it's like no 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 put them a bit further back he's like, okay put them <laughs> yeah. further back and he's like no 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 a bit further back and then somebody's just like, no no fucking away over there so, <laughs> keep going yeah <laughs> It's, the, uh, the budget really showed didn't it i mean nine million dollars man mm, i know do we know how much it made at the box office yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna say yeah I, I did double check this was the highest if you put it in like 2011 terms into you know inflation and all that this was the second highest grossing bond film of all time thus far after skyfall so it was, it was a huge hit this film and there was a, of course the, you know the usual um you know, toys and paraphernalia. This was at the height of Bond Mania when this came out. I think Sean Connery was kind of had his fill of it and was getting tired of, of the series. Could you tell in his performance in that way? No, I, no, not in this. I don't think not this. Uh, <laughs> Which I'll, that's all stage mm-hmm. now. Not in this one. Um, I thought Connery was great in it, and uh, yeah, he's great humour from him. And I think I liked. He did show. Um, there was some. There was a lot of elements of Fleming's Bond showing up, despite the the grandeur of all the gadgets and everything. You know, the, just the fact that Bond's an expert in in so many fields, you know, and he's getting an exceptional memory. You know, he knows a little bit about everything because he's been around the block. He's like Eton educated and everything. And the so, for example, like when the senior talking about with him and Domino on the beach, I think she steps in a a jellyfish or an anglerfish or some sort of animal with you know like a poisonous spine and bond knows instinctively how you deal with that he says like lie down and he kind of pulls out with his teeth and it's like this will hurt a bit like he knew exactly what to do in that situation Uh, yeah i know um there was one thing also i wanted to to touch on the 007 music that was the music from from russia with love made a return i quite like that yeah uh for the action scenes sort of thing so it was kind of that was obviously i'm guessing the director terence young having that input uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because I mean, not, to um, me, this film that. felt. I suppose in some ways there was like that. It's like the trilogy of the Terence Young films, you know. Yeah, that's got, a good point. Yeah, and this was like the third in that, you know, but with the excess from Goldfinger seeping into this film, so it was kind of you can see where the continuity is as well. But uh, yeah, that was something I'd noticed as well. Um, so the underwater fight scenes. This is where for me the film we touched on it earlier, but. <clears throat> The film kind of loses loses me a little in terms of yes the the first one Bond is he's dressed in black as well as them and it just gets a bit confusing for me I was not following a lot quite was going on if you blinked for a second or looked away you started to lose who was who and which one was which and you had to really sort of concentrate to work out which one was Bond and which one were the the ones that were trying to attack Bond mm-hmm. that sequence it was it was because it was the first of them. You did think, well, wow, that's that's impressive. That's cool. Yes. But as the film went on, there were more of those scenes building up, obviously, to the, the final one, which went between, on yeah. far too long, yeah. as we've as yeah. we've mentioned. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, out of all the can, the huge amount of times I've seen this film, I do have a tendency to switch off a bit in the the overlong underwater sequences. I think the the fight with Largo at the end was maybe. Um, a slight anticlimax to it and I feel that that was one of the situations the same as the fight right in the pre-title sequence with, with Bouvard, um, where um, it's you can tell that the footage is clearly sped up and it's too fast especially so the end sequence fighting Largo and then when the, the, the boat gets out of control you know that could have been done better but of course I think it's really well done the way Domino shows up at the last second and shoots him the harpoon and I like that another small element he wasn't a big character but the the Polish scientist whose name I don't know that who Largo employs to help um you know like maintain the bombs he switches sides They're like like a lot of people do in the the Bond films as we, as we go through the series and he he actually frees Domino to the, the which actually allows her to be able to you know, I save Bond because Bond was about to die. Yeah. So she saved Bond. Not only did she kill Largo, but she saved Bond as what well. What made him change his mind? Did I miss that? I think I it was just a softie, was, to be honest. Yeah, there was that bit where he was down in the boat trying to get Largo, and he heard obviously heard her screaming. He burst in on them. I wonder if at that point he went, "Oh, right, I'm not, I'm not comfortable right, with, with him okay, doing yeah, this." Yeah. So that that maybe was the point at which he, I mean, he must have untied her because she was tied yeah. up and ready to. Ready to go. And there was, yeah, sorry. Has I was just going to say, has has Bond been saved by a woman or a Bond girl in every film so far? At least three of the four. He does, because yeah, he gets saved from Rosa Klebb, 
by the the girl in that scene. There's this one, and I'm sure there's another one where well the bad guy has been killed. Galore, certainly, yeah, saved, I was say she that. saves yes, the entire that's world indirectly. Yes. Switching the uh, gas canisters. And the first one, uh, I don't know. In that one, perhaps, perhaps no, but perhaps maybe not that one. The last three, at least, though. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. Yeah, and there's another interest. In, in, Bond is also saved by another character you might not have noticed too well. So the the big what they call the junk canoe, the big kind of local Mardi Gras and. On Nassau, when Bond's getting escorted, he's been captured by Fiona and the the Spectre agents working, or not agents, but staff working for Largo. They're accompanying him in the car, but they actually get held up with a big street parade. And there's some drunk guy um, with a, a bottle of, I don't think it was Buckfast or wh- whatever they had drink <laughs> over there, leaning in. He's, like, he's, he's actually offering the people in the car a drink. He's like, have a drink, can't harm you, man. Bond uses the advantage. Use that to adva- his advantage and like kicks the drink out of his hand to the lighter and causes a fire and gets out. So Bond actually gets saved by JK. So I don't know <laughs> if, I want to, if that's <laughs> it's the first time I really thought about that tonight after seeing the film again. That is it's... that is I love it the Bahamian Buckfast every yeah. day. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone's welcome to save Bond. You know, no, uh, no but, yeah, I mean, because you don't know what would have happened after that. True. In terms of dialogue, one other thing that kind of jumped out for me it was when Fiona, or when he discovers that Fiona is sort of, I suppose, evil. When they're in that sort of hotel room and the the guys bust in, and she makes a point for the first time, sort of in the Bond sequ- series, of saying, "We know that you sleep with women." and use that to your advantage. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I am the opposite of that. This is a failure. And, I mean, he obviously just sort of laughs off and goes, oh, well, I guess that was a failure. But it's the first sort of acknowledgement that Bond uses women for that purpose. Yeah, And true. an acknowledgement from a female character. That was, I thought, that's that's quite, that's an interesting touch, that. Did he end up sleeping with her? That was yes, after yes, it was, that was yeah. literally after she yeah. after he had it, because... That's when he said, I did that for King and Country. I didn't get any pleasure That's out of right, that. That's right, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was trying to get a rise out of her. And it's as though like, she knew all about him. She's like, oh, you know, you do it for King or whatever it was you said, like um, the the right and virtue and all that. It's like she knows everything about Bond. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. It's the line he's looking at her and says, I didn't do it for pleasure. And he's looking her up and down. Exactly. <laughs> I know, yeah. uh, I know. <laughs> like, yeah, I've, I've had better. Yeah. But I suppose and that it, shows to what extent Spectre know all mm. about Bond and his tactics. True, true, yeah. And remember, his uh, Bond has is um, he's aided by Paula, who's another MI6 operative. There's a lot of um, another you know element the, the exoticness of that film. A lot of bikini clad girls. She's one of them, and um, yeah, I think she's like quite good. But it was a bit odd when then Fiona Volpe appears in in the hotel room. This is when Bond's away, and she says, and she just. This Paul just sitting reading a magazine. It's like you, she's an MI six operative. You'd think she'd have her wits about her, and she just and Fiona's like, oh, oh, he's a date with you too. And it's as though she doesn't even seem slightly suspicious that somehow this woman with the red hair might actually be an enemy. It's like she just thinks it's some other woman who wants yeah. to sleep with Bond. You know, I think she should have. And then she kind of just son. She hears a knock on the door. Paul and she she wanders to the door and she doesn't even have a gun and she just looks in the mirror you know she should have if she's a serious MI6 operative she should have really had her wits about her there I think and it leads it leads to her death which is obviously a very sad scene as well yeah she, but she actually commits suicide remember they say she she uh, used the cyanide I did hear the cyanide line and that's what I thought wow is this a suicide you didn't see it but that was the it, the the dialogue between the two blokes seemed to suggest you know she wasn't dead but she now is. She must have taken cyanide of it. She's she clearly, rather than speaking, took her own life. Which I, I mean, it shows it's as bravery goes. That's one hell of a move. Hard yeah, hitting. yeah. Um, again, Bond doesn't really show much response to it all. Really, no, he checks he, that she's dead, and then essentially moves right, on. Right, that's it. But I, I suppose it is just it's part of the job for him. Yeah, and also he is in the, in peril at the same time. So yes. you can sense when the scene why he would. But um, yeah, an interesting interesting change up there. Um, all right, is there anything else we want to tackle before we get to the rating? That well, I was just going to talk talk about the um, um, shark scenes a bit more because there was a lot of sharks in the film. Largo sure, yeah. had his own. Sharks that he kept in a pool, which seemed a bit dangerously shallow for them. But, um, <laughs> but, but um, I like the scene. Bond, you just know when Bond starts fighting this guy at the edge of the pool, they're going to tumble into the shark pool, and of course, Largo closes 
like uh, this sort of roof over the top of the pool, so they get stuck underwater. And Bond luckily is his little breathing device from Q, but he, he, Bond goes through this like secondary tunnel into another pool, and he doesn't know there's sharks coming in the other direction. Now they obviously use real sharks for this film, and all you know, obviously relatively small sharks, not great whites or anything, but still dangerous nevertheless. And um, a lot of this was done with a stuntman, which, you know, you were asking me about during the film, but um, there was bits Connery had to kind of rub shoulders with the sharks, and he wasn't too keen in doing that. He said, the only way I'm going to swim near these things is if going through that kind of little mini tunnel, if you have plexiglass, so it looks as if I'm swimming next to them. So they said, okay, but they ran out of plexiglass. And see the bit when you see Bond suddenly notices a shark come towards him that he doesn't expect, and he has a look of fright in his face. Uh, Connery, that was actually Connery really noticing <laughs> that, that there was no glass and the shower was coming towards him. So that was real. It wasn't wow. just put on for the film, you that's, know. That's terrifying. incredible. That is terrifying. I think that's one of the, the worst things I could imagine. The sharks are well worth mentioning. I know I said that there wasn't really a, <clears throat> a sort of massive, over-the-top comical villains layer, but the sharks were the one exception mm, to that. You yeah. have to, I mean, they were, you can see where SeaWorld get their ideas for keeping orcas from. Just <laughs> yeah. these sharks in a very, very shallow pool. But as soon as you see that, you know, you know exactly that's where the villain lives. It's a tiny little swimming pool with sharks swimming around. You think, yeah, wow, yeah. that's, that's, that's over the top crazy. <laughs> see, that's the, the likes of, you know, a large use of sharks. That adds, again, adds, there's a lot of sharks, there's a lot of helicopters, there's a casino seen a villain with an eye patch. It's a real kind of greatest hits Bond film to me. Like it has just yeah, a lot true. of this sort of more kind of cheesy Femme elements. Fatale. You just, yeah, and you, Femme Fatale too. Yeah, that you'd expect of a, a, a big epic Bond film. That's, uh, you know, one of my real enjoyments of the film. It's like, a, it's a, it's a, and it's similar to, I mentioned like Goldeneyes a bit like that, a real kind of greatest hits of mm-hmm. Bond. Mm-hmm. It's uh, quite an, an exciting big scale one. Yeah, true. I completely agree. Anything else that you guys have on your notes you want to... No, the last note I think I've got is um, just after Fiona got shot, Bond puts him down in a chair and says, mind if my friend sits this one out, she's just dead. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, another, was yep. completely unexpected, just the way that sentence ended. Yeah, that properly made me burst out <laughs> laugh. That was a, a nice sort of touch of humour. Sorry, she, she's just dead. And off he goes. I wonder, you know, the books. I know you've probably not read that book, have you, Gordon? But no, uh, no, I've read the book, and it's quite. They didn't have lines like that, that, did you think? No, I mean, Bond was Bond was quite a humorless character Uh in in the Fleming novels, and one I really not so much in the film, but in the book, I get the real sense of so Bond had four days to find these two atomic bombs before Spectre launched them at a town, at a city in the UK or America. That was their ransom demands for, I think it was $100 million or something. And you got a real sense in the book. It kept reminding you of how little time he had. And in the film, you get... That's one of my enjoyments out of the film as well. You get the sense that he's not only trying to thwart a villain, but he's up against... He's racing against the clock throughout the film, but he's still so cool. He still has time to chat up women. He still has time to, you know, go swimming and go to the casino. And I love how just everyone in the film seems to be smoking all the time. Largo and, you know, Uh. Domino. It's like Ghostbusters, you know, you get these films where everyone smokes for no reason at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a product of its time. Um, All right, I think we've probably covered most things you want to discuss. I think so. Uh, So that means we're now at the rating of this film. I will go first on this one because I think I usually go last. Yes, your turn. So on this one, I'm conflicted as usual. This time, I think I'm leaning at a three stars for this. I think it's a high three, just short of the four but it's a free mostly for the film feeling that those we talked about it already those underwater sequences needed to be a bit shorter um and probably also less cluttered in terms of I was struggling to understand who was who at certain points things like that but many great things to recommend about this film I still think free stars is a recommendation in terms of to watch the film and I really enjoyed all the main staples of all the stuff we've just discussed visually striking film uh, brilliant lush underwater sequences without a doubt the gadgets again all the swagger from Goldfinger's carried over the jetpack the hilarious and some of the, the one liners are fantastic so and that other that, that scene I liked on the beach with the emotional scene I enjoyed so and a, and a decent villain in, in Largo as well so yeah three stars from me Steve so I've in the last few I've gone two threes and then I went a four for Goldfinger 
I think I I mean I have to pull back from four this time round for the the lengthiness of some of those underwater scenes. They did go on for too long, but at the same time I am slightly conflicted because I can kind of see why they'd be showing off. This was ninety was it sixty five? Sixty five. Sixty five. Yeah. And for the time it was impressive and it did it looked stunning the the complete i mean it takes bravery in a director to completely cut the dialogue and just accompany these incredible underwater silent scenes with this orchestral music so it's again i'm going it'll be a high three i'd be almost i'd be if we were doing halves i'd go three and a half yeah. so you know what i'm 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 introducing halves here i'm going three <laughs> and a, i'm yeah. going three and a half it is something i have thought about Normally, in all of the film ratings we've done for Capiche, it's always just been the strict uh, star rating with no halves or decimals or percentages, things like that. I feel like maybe for this, we, we need to, to, to consider to really get a, a better spectrum of where the films sit. I think with 25 we, to go, yeah, we I think it may be more fun to... to introduce. We'll need to decide maybe off air if we're going to do it as half stars is enough or to, so it's like a, almost like a 10 mark scale or percentage in terms of it could be a, a 5.2 and all that and you'll get into the, the real nitty gritty of it we can maybe decide off air but for now we'll call it we'll do half I'm, stars I'm, I'm going to call this as a three and a half yeah I, 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 if, if that's the case it's the same for me as well then Gordon well like like Steve McCall um who has introduced half marks, apparently. <laughs> I, I, I myself like to go against the grain. So I'm going to disagree with you guys slightly. And I'm going to say this film is up there with Goldfinger for me. This, to me, is very much a greatest hits of Bond. Um, it's very exotic. It's big. It's it's just fun. It's exciting. I, I'm I'm a sucker for sharks in films, I've got to say. Um, and just, you know, like, yeah, animals. Like, all these amazing close-up shots of... Um, sea life and stuff just just adds to it for me amazing dialogue amazing performance from sean connery the aston martin comes up again brilliant performance from desmond Welling against qm again money penny you know great supporting cast i thought Largo was a great villain as well um and adolfo celli like uh, many of many of the early actors like goldfinger was dubbed throughout the film but amazing performance from him um, you know the casino scene bond wearing the taxi just a, a lot of um real staples of bond and uh they use the budget well. Um, it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to really um, appreciate Never Seen Ever Again because I, I just have so much love for this film. And I mean, like any film, it's not without its flaws. Like I said, that you know, the sped up camera work holds it back a little bit. There's a, there's a few editing flaws as well. Like one yes. one example is I think I think to be honest, it's one of these films was maybe rushed somewhat. For example, when Bond's talking to Q, there's a bit you can see Q's clearly. Desmond Leon's clearly not speaking, but you hear his voice like, now pay attention, he's kind of looking away. <laughs> you know, that that's like the most obvious one. There's a few bits like that. Um, the choppy fight scene towards the end, I thought, was uh, stuck out a bit. Very, yeah, maybe more the, the boat, 60s yeah. action style, it was more the thing. Yeah, like I said, um, you know, the, the, I agree with you guys that the, the underwater scenes were, were too long. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's a long film. They, they clearly had the money to stretch out and, you know, underwater, you know, filming is very expensive so they obviously used a, a lot of the budget for that I think Felix Leiter's great in this as well Rick Van Nutter as he's called and he only made one appearance and again they handled the, the continuing kind of hiding of Blofeld very well mm -hmm. and um, I just I love the whole race against time idea of this of this plot and yeah I, I find like Goldfinger you know it's hard to criticise the film too much Um but well, yeah, we're obviously into divisive territory because you guys are giving it a three and I've given this a five. And I feel well, you only live twice coming up. George Lazenby's soul film on Her Majesty's in. Of course, Diamonds Are Forever. You know, we're, we will be getting into divisive territory. So it's, it's going to So you're giving it, is it five stars? Then? Yeah, I'm giving it five stars, yeah. So we'll have to, probably for the next one, we'll have to hash it out in terms of, okay, where do we feel that these the, the films have already reviewed sit if we're introducing a new rating system? So then we'll cover where they all sit on the next podcast, just to kind of round up, to get a clearer picture of where we're at, because we've just given half stars to a film. Um, but yeah, that's, and we'll also need to get Fran's opinion as well. You'll have to watch it. <laughs> we will, we'll, <clears throat> yeah, we'll have to drag him sort of into our a version of the film and get his his thoughts on yeah, this too. Yeah, obviously, 
if this was uh, a blowfile style scene, he would be number four and number four. I'd be my fingers hovering over the button that says number four for his seat. Uh, so we're just anticipating them just appearing any minute. Yeah, well. added to the excitement of the film. Yep. All right then. On that, I think we're done for today. We're now gonna, if we've got time, play some James Bond. We'll see. But uh, we will be back for. You only love twice. You only love twice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I was trying to remember that there. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, that should be good. One more Sean Connery film before another Bond appears. And uh, yeah. Getting to, yeah, but very interesting times. So, and some of the more divisive, not just between us, but the genuine, genuinely um, divisive films among fans coming up. And, and we're going to... Um, Oh, and I'm not going to say because it's going to spoil it. I'm, yeah, I'm let's, bad let's, for giving, giving yeah. away things. All I right, shut okay. up. All right. Oh, with <laughs> that, though, and with that, we are done. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you for having us once again. Thanks Pleasure again, as always. Steve. Thanks again, Steve, too. <laughs> <laughs> number two. Number three. Two as well. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I thought I need feed. I need food. Feed, feed. <laughs> God, I <see>. need feed. <laughs> need <laughs> feed. Know about to be fair, <laughs> you, Steve, you've been up since what? Three a.m. Uh, I've been up. Yeah, my alarm went off at half past. No, half past two this morning. My alarm goes off. I <laughs> applaud you for being able to make this in seemingly on good form as well. This so is I mean, one thing we now on film number four, Steve McCall. One one thing we know is that Steve Barry. Anything you say, he'll put on the podcast, <laughs> as he always does. So just be yeah. careful what you say. If it's remotely entertaining, I'll find a way to slip Aye, it in. Either he always the, does. The Steve, outro, sponsored end. by Caffeine. Yeah. <laughs>